Our scripture reading from this morning is from various pieces of Genesis 1 and 2. It's in your bulletin, starting with Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has a breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Chapter 2. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, a mist was coming up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. This is God's word. Well, greetings once again uh, from Church Creek Presbyterian. Uh, It's very exciting to be back with you this morning. Let's start with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, you have given us this account of this amazing work, not simply of creation, but what you're doing in and through that creation for us. And so draw us once again into the story of creation through which we are drawn into your life and what it means for us to be your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. John Calvin once said, wherever you cast your eyes, there is no spot in the universe wherein you cannot discern at least some sparks of God's glory. You cannot in one glance survey the most vast and beautiful system of the universe in its wide expanse without being completely overwhelmed by the boundless force of its brightness. 
this skillful ordering of the universe is for us a sort of mirror in which we can contemplate God who is otherwise invisible. It's a lot of words. Gerald Manley Hopkins, I think, has put it more succinctly. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. Now, why is that a big deal? Last time that I was here, I asked you to ask yourself, what is it that you want from following Jesus Christ? That Jesus, in shaping uh, discipleship from the very calling of the first disciple in the Gospel of John, asks the question, what do you want? What do you want from following Jesus Christ? And as we looked at that, we, we talked about the essential nature that desire plays in the life of faith. As the writer of Hebrews has said, not just believing that God exists, but believing that He rewards those who seek Him. Desire playing an elemental role in faith. Desire playing an elemental role in discipleship. What I want us to look at this morning is to see how that essential role of, this, of desire doesn't start with discipleship, but it starts all the way back in creation itself. One of the times that I've been here, we, we briefly talked about this creation account and the way that when we read it through the wrong lens of science, what happens is we narrow the text down to simply being about creation versus evolution. And, and we, we narrow it down so that what we're doing is interacting with science. And when we do that, what we do is we actually lose the intent and purpose of the creation account, which I noted last time in the big picture is this, this movement of creation being in total darkness, God entering in through His Word and Spirit, and then there being a series of days that go from darkness to light, darkness to light, darkness to light, ending on the seventh day that is only light. That there's this beautiful unfolding of God creating and then Him shaping it and moving His, His creation to what He wants it to ultimately be, which is pure light. That, that day of Sabbath rest where, where God looks at what He has done and he, he declares it to be very good. But why does God provide us all of these seemingly weird details? He doesn't just simply unfold for us, hey, I started everything, so therefore you're supposed to listen to me. Because when you listen to the way that creation is talked about when it's creation versus evolution, that tends to be the message, right? 
I'm the origin, so I get to say what happens. Now, is that true? Absolutely. And we want to hold on to that. But God doesn't describe things that way here. Instead, He takes us through the creation week where He unfolds for us all of these details. And if you look at the details themselves, what you will find is that the details are helping to unfold God's intent. Now, it's hard for us sometimes to be able to really see that because of the way our reading has been shaped by the creation versus evolution discussion. But if you look at Genesis 1 and 2, what you will find in this, these two accounts of this one creation event, you, you will find a perspective that is being provided that is to shape the way that we interact with the material. And what, So what's that perspective? Well, in Genesis, the Genesis 1 account of creation, if you read through that account later today, what you will find is that the perspective of the reader is, is standing there next to the Lord watching what the Lord is doing. It's like we're being granted the heavenly perspective to watch as God says things and they come into existence and we're sitting there and we're standing there with Him and we're watching all this stuff happen. When you move into chapter 2, if you notice what happens there, read that later today, is, that, is now instead of sitting outside creation watching what the Lord is doing, you're now standing within creation and you're watching things going on all around you. You're able to sit there and notice that, well, nothing has grown yet because there, it hasn't rained and there's no one to work the ground. And then you start looking at all these things that God causes to start growing. And He gives these weird details about trees and grass and bushes. Gemstones. Rivers. All these details. And you're standing there in the creation watching things develop from the inside. The very perspective moving from the objective watching what God is doing to the subjective of experiencing what God is doing is the point of the creation account for God's people. It is not simply that God has objectively made things and therefore He is the origin, therefore He is the ruler, and we you know, are to do what He says and that we can trust because you know, He is you know, the, the one who is in control. There is so much more to that. Now, it is based on that. But moving beyond that understanding there is the chapter 2 experiencing that is absolutely vital to what God is doing from the very beginning of creation. In these two accounts of this one event, we have this intermingling of transcendence and imminence. God as sovereign creator, but also God 
as this intimate covenant Lord. God creates. And within this creation, God gives the blessing. Notice here first. God gives the blessing of his, of his life-giving presence within creation. In chapter 1, we see things like the Spirit hovering above the waters. God's Word being spoken and that Word actually causing things to happen. We see this light that breaks into creation from outside of creation. It is a light that is not coming from the sun. If you notice, the sun has not been created yet. This is light coming into the creation from outside of the creation. There is this presence of God that is invading what He has made. And we see this through things like the Spirit, Word, and light. And with this life-giving presence, there is this life-giving blessing. God sees all that He makes, and behold, it is very good. Now, we've been told throughout the account that things are good, but now we are told that they are very good. The goodness that has been described up to this point has been the goodness described of the parts. This part happens, and it's good. This part happens, it's good. This part happens, it's good. But this blessing, the very good, is a blessing that is a blessing that takes all the parts and pulls them into a whole. And looking at the whole of what he has done, he says, it's all very good. The emphasis here is on wholeness. And the way the Hebrew reads, the emphasis for God's perspective is enthusiasm. He is not detached going, oh yeah, I did pretty good. He is enthusiastic about what he has done and the whole big picture of the way the parts and the whole are fitting together in this harmony that exists from the very beginning. A harmony, a perfection of the completed heavens and earth giving expression to the character of what makes God excited. Notice that this blessing on the whole is a blessing shared by mankind. Be fruitful and multiply as those made in my image. Be fruitful. And multiply. Now, there's, it's interesting that the same blessing is also given to the animals, right? The difference is it's not spoken to the animals. It's spoken. But the blessing to humanity here is a blessing that's spoken to humanity. There is an intimacy here. There is a special relationship here between God and and those who are created in His image. It is a special 
relationship. And so you have this life-giving presence of God that is moved into this, this blessing from God for those uh, for everything within his creation, but a special blessing for those who were created in his image. Now this, by the way, this is the polemic that would have thrown the original audience of this material, it would have thrown them through a loop. For the original audience, that, that first generation of Israel coming out of Egypt, for them to read what is here... Would, would, would shock them, not because, well, well he's saying that evolution's not true. They, they, didn't, they weren't aware of that. The shock for them would have been this. In the ancient Near East, the only person who was created in the image of God was the king. And what that meant was the king was just the highest in the pecking order of slaves. Because in the ancient Near East, the gods had created humankind in order to serve them. And the king was just the head slave. God here is saying, no, no, no. All whom I have created are in my image. Secondly, notice the way that God goes out of His way here at the end of chapter 1 as well as in chapter 2 of discussing food. Now some of us get excited about that. Some of you don't get excited enough. Some of us get too excited. But we see this, this once again, this kind of these weird details about why is the Lord pointing out food? Well, that's because in the ancient Near East, the gods had originally created humankind in order for them to provide food to the gods. They were slave to the, slaves to the gods as a way of providing the gods food. And what does God say here? Look at the rich abundance of what I'm giving you for food as those who all share in my image. Do you see the, the, the greater polemic that is unfolding here in this creation account, you are special. You've been created in God's image to enjoy His material blessings. Oh, hold up. I'm getting a little health, wealth, and prosperity. Let's, let's, back it, let's back it down a little bit. But that's the reality. I've made you and I've given you a special place, and I've given you a special blessing, and I am giving you all this incredible stuff for your enjoyment and so that you can participate with me in what I am doing with this creation. He's giving them not just, just enough to get by, right? Is God de described here as being stingy? Is he Spartan? No. He's revealing himself in terms of abundance, goodness, benevolence, 
sharing Himself. But the sharing of Himself, notice here, is described in terms of the very material blessings themselves. Let me put it another way. This life-giving presence of God that He is sharing with those whom He has created in His image is communicated through symbols. And not just the big symbols, right? The symbols of the covenant here that we're all aware of, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of, of, of uh, wisdom. But notice that the Spirit of God that is described hovering over the waters is just simply the Hebrew word for wind. That same wind that is later described in chapter 2 as being blown into those who were created in His image. There is land. In fact, it's muddy ground. And for what comes out of the muddy ground? Well, Adam's body. And later, Eve's coming out of his body. There is land and there are bodies. There is this beautiful place for them to live with trees and water and precious stones. This is not a a utilitarian existence. This is an existence of lush beauty and goodness. And this is not simply a home for Adam and Eve and for the animals. It is a home for God. Where even the two verbs that are used to describe this calling that God gives to Adam to work the garden and to serve it are later the exact same Hebrew verbs that are used to describe the work of the priest in the tabernacle and the temple. This is a rich, lush, beautiful existence where God is revealing Himself because He is dwelling there Himself. And He is revealing this life-giving presence through material, through matter. Why is that important? This is worldview stuff. This is not, okay, what's a practical tip for you to wake up tomorrow morning to get things started? This is worldview shaping. This is the way that you wake up. This is the way that you understand your being awake. This is a way for you to understand your going to sleep and getting rest. This is a way for you to understand your eating and your drinking. And yes, even your being merry. Hold up. Eat, drink, and be merry. Well, those are, that's a line we're familiar with. Doesn't the writer of Ecclesiastes use that phrase over and over and over? But negatively? Well, life under the sun. Eat, meet, eat, eat drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. So how on earth, if the, if the writer of Ecclesiastes is using that phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, negatively, how can it be positive here in Genesis 1 and 2? 
Well, the writer of Hebrews describes the eating and drinking and being merry in Ecclesiastes as happening in a life that is under the sun. And what is life under the sun? Life under the sun means a life where you are present only with the things that you can see, that you can feel, that you can touch, that you can smell, and that you can hear. Life under the sun is talking about um, the things that we can access, the life that we can access through the senses. He's talking about life only through the lens of the material, the bodily, the created. And he's talking about these things apart from the simultaneous consideration of the deeper things of life that are connected to the things that you can see, but that can only be grasped by faith. Life under the sun means that you are interacting with the the sensual world and your senses stop right where they are. That your eyes stop with only that which can be seen. That your ears are only picking up the things that you can audibly hear. That your sense of touch is only picking up that which you can physically be aware of. Creation as God is unfolding it in Genesis 1 and 2 is really important for us today because what God is saying is that the material was never meant to be an end in itself. It is always a means to a greater end. And the eating and drinking and being merry that is appropriate is when one can interact with these incredible blessings that God has used to communicate His life-giving presence when we eat and when we drink and when the merriness of our hearts is leading us to God. So that the symbols themselves are not the ultimate purpose. The symbols are means to something greater. Where your mind and your heart and your will are able to interact with the senses, but through the senses you are able by faith to interact with God who has been communicating Himself through symbols, through material from the very beginning of creation. And the way that He describes that interaction is enthusiastic. And it is in terms of desire. He makes matter so that we will desire that matter and through that matter, desire Him. Now sin obviously has messed this up. Sin has corrupted. But as reformed believers, we understand that where sin has corrupted, it has not eviscerated that this world still is a place where God's goodness is experienced. Where His good will can be experienced by 
everyone, regardless of if they are people of faith or not, right? As the rain falls on both the just and the unjust. As both the just and the unjust can eat food and enjoy it. The problem for the unbeliever is that the goodness that they experience in God's creation stops right there. And the reason they are left feeling empty is not because the matter was bad and not because their approaching matter to enjoy it was bad. It's because their approach to the matter doesn't lead through the matter to the greater thing. And that's why they're hollow. That's why they're empty. That's why their lives feel that broken and why they struggle. And why it is so important for us today to not get caught up into this false polemic between the spiritual and the material. It is a polemic that has existed since the, the, the age of scholasticism, going back to the, the, you know, the late 16th, early 17th centuries, where theology was being pursued more and more and more simply through the idea of abstract, abstract truth statements. Where the truth statements themselves were being removed from real life where emotions became suspect, where a good Christian life was one that was marked by just barely scraping by. Beloved, what we have with God and in the original creation that yes, got corrupted by sin, but yet still exists to some degree is this reality that God has designed you and He has designed this world in such a way is that as you experience the goodness of God in this world, that your hearts and your minds and your wills are lifted in a heavenly, direct, a heavenly direction where that desire for the good things here leads to that greater desire in the greater world to come. A greater world which will not be us, like in the Bugs Bunny cartoons, sitting up on clouds playing harps, where the new heavens and the new earth will be material, a material existence, a real world existence, where the types and the shadows of this fallen world will give way and we will no longer have to just simply by faith move from the material to God Himself, but we will see Him as He is. We will see Christ face to face. And when we see Him, John tells us we'll be made like Him. And when we are made like Him, we will live in the unmediated glory of God, that direct presence that would overwhelm us and kill us right now. We will be made fit to dwell in that glory so that we are not merely, as Calvin said, contemplating glory. We will be experienced the fullness 
of that glory. But until that time comes of the experience of the fullness, we experience that glory even now. Because this hidden presence of God in this fallen world has, become, has not always been hidden, has it? For the hidden presence of God by which His life-giving presence came into this world to shape His people and to give His people life involved the second person of the Trinity taking on to Himself real flesh. A real body. Where He ate and where He drank. And yes, where He was married. That truly died. And yes, was truly raised from the dead. To a new body. The hidden presence of God, beloved, has not always been hidden. It has been revealed in a magnificent way. And the hope that you and I have is because God became flesh, what He has restored for us is not merely a hidden presence where we, through the symbols of creation, can experience our God but where through a share in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we will experience His unmediated glory forevermore. And so yes, desire, wanting something from Jesus in your discipleship is so essential to your faith because God created you this way. And what sin has corrupted, faith is restoring. So look at your lunch differently today. Look at your home differently. Look at your spouse and your children differently. Look at this world differently. Because beloved, it is not merely a mirror by which we can contemplate God, as Calvin said. It is a doorway through which we experience God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what an amazing truth. Forgive me for even expressing it that way. It is true, but it is not merely a truth. It is trueness using, it is reality. God becoming flesh. God using material. God facilitating all of your purposes for us. And so Lord, shape the devotion of our lives this way so that we will not merely do the work of, of learning your truth, but that we will put in the work of cultivating the experience of your truth. That we would cultivate our eyes to see things differently. That we would cultivate our ears to hear you differently. To cultivate our sense of touch. So that even, Lord, in the coming uh, of the Good Friday service, as this body 
partakes of the Lord's Supper, that the, the sensory touching and tasting will lead them to the heavenly and to the glorious. Not because the bread and the cup are insignificant, but because the significance comes by way of communicating your life-saving grace and presence. And so Lord, teach us and shape us to crave Your presence. And therefore, through Your creation, to have that life of devotion formed and shaped over and over and over again. Bless us. Because we know that that is Your desire for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.